Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we are going to explore spiritual anatomy. With me is Desda Zuckerman. She is the author of Your Sacred Anatomy. She is also the founder of the core individuation process, as it was known for 20 years, and the Sacred Anatomy Academy. Welcome, Desda. Hi, Jeffrey. It's great to be here, and I feel so honored that you've asked to interview me. I'm excited to have a conversation. Uh, I've been interested in auras and chakras and spiritual anatomy for many, many decades, and I have to say, I have never come across a work on this topic as detailed and as beautifully illustrated, by the way, as as your book. And and I've looked at quite a bit of material from Kundalini Yoga and and elsewhere. So uh, I'm I'm very impressed with the work that you do. Let's let's start. Uh, uh, by talking about how you got into this field. Wow. Well, that it's actually something that started very, very young for me. So <clears throat> when I was a little girl, I saw energies around people, places, and things, and I didn't really think anything of it. I thought everybody did. I thought that that was the way it was. And so it really wasn't until I was in an accident when I was 14 and the visual images changed dramatically for me that I realized that other people didn't see what I had seen and that they definitely didn't see what I was seeing after the accident. So when I was 14, I flew out of a car and landed on my head and that knocked me unconscious. And the last thing I saw before I lost consciousness was a big crow up on top of a light pole. And as I came to, my brothers scooped me up and put me back into our Volkswagen van. We had a really old 59 Volkswagen van. And I laid on the back seat and I looked up at my brother's faces and they were totally different. I all of a sudden didn't just see the soft light around their faces, but I saw this incredibly dense and populated energetic. And it took me, Jeffrey, it actually took me about four years to dial in my visual acuity again and to be able to see normally uh, for me. I never, ever mm -hmm. so have I gone back. I imagine that initially you were concerned it was a form of neurological damage. Well, I was 14, so I just thought, you know, something's wrong. And I wasn't sure what it was. So I didn't think neurology. I didn't think, I thought it's my eyes. There's something wrong. So I went to the eye doctor mm. with my mom, and I had no damage to my eyes. So it wasn't really until much, much later when I had brain scans that um, I learned that there was nothing wrong with my brain either. So it has something to do with flipping a kind of a switch into seeing um, it perhaps possibly other dimensionally. And so I see a sort of a maybe a sixth dimensional reality, like most of us see in three dimensions, but I have this extra part that I now am able to see in. So over the years, what I did, Jeffrey, was I, I started to map what I saw. I started to draw pictures of it, and I wrote down impressions and things like if somebody was really angry, they looked a particular way, and things like that. So I got a sense from that of, of the difference between people and more than that, the sameness between people, because I saw that people were the same. 
they weren't different. And different species of animals were different. So elephants were a little different than horses, different than dogs. And I started to see this incredible energetic life that was happening around people. It wasn't until I was in my 40s that I began to think of it as a sacred anatomy. From the age of 14 to the age of uh 44. So for three decades, you're basically keeping notes and uh, observing what's going on. At some point, you began to study various Asian traditions. Well, that didn't really influence me at all, because in, starting in about 1972, after I read Blavatsky and uh, Bailey, and I looked at the drawings of Ledbetter, I decided, and I read um, Autobiography of a Yogi, I put everything down. And I actually didn't read anything at all about healing or about any um, energy work or what anybody else was doing. But what I did do, Jeffrey, and this, is, this was the most interesting part, is I got acupuncture treatments. And so when I would mm. get acupuncture treatments, I would literally lay on the table and watch my hands and watch my body and the energy change. And I would see that the meridians had a particular connection, but I didn't study Asian medicine until much, 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 much later. And it was, it was an mm -hmm. interesting process for me, very organic and very subjective for many years. Well, it, at some point, you know, you did study, if I recall correctly, Tibetan Buddhism. Well, yeah, I was, um, I was, interestingly enough, I was turned on to Tibetan Buddhism by a woman named Dr. Gail Pierce. And Dr. Gail had hiked through Tibet when she was a young woman. And I met her in the early 70s. Dr. Gail had uh, met His Holiness as a child. And so whenever he traveled, when he traveled to the United States for the first time, he came to her house and he taught the Medicine Buddha practice in her house for the first time. And she was an extraordinary, extraordinary healer and uh, amazing and interesting woman. She was a chiropractor who also studied light healing. And when she went to Tibet, the all uh, she would go into a town, and at the gate of the town would be all of the people who had anything to do with spiritual awakening or any kind of healing work, and they would be waiting for Dr. Gale to come. And then she would do healings on them, and they would do healings on her. So she came back with a lot of esoteric knowledge about Tibetan healing, and she spoke no Tibetan, so everything was learned just very organically. So Dr. Gale taught me how to bring in the rainbow lights, which is a a, a form of Tibetan healing. And I began to study Tibetan Buddhism from a very organic point of view, so I began to meditate. I had a meditation practice already, but I continued my meditation practice and was very influenced by what I found as I, I experienced Zojin. So Zojin meditation is the form that I still practice, and I continue to practice it now for over 40 years. But I gather when you write about sacred anatomy, uh, you acknowledge this system is really unique to you. You're not necessarily, uh, although you are influenced by the various people you've studied with, th this is your system. It's not something that comes uh, whole cloth from any culture that you've studied. Yeah, it isn't from any other system at all. Although when you look at my pictures of what I call the layers, which are the organs of the sacred anatomy, they resemble the bodies of uh, Madame Blavatsky, who studied with the swamis in India in the 1800s. So they do resemble that, and yet they are not mm -hmm. that at all, because I watched, listened meditated, prayed, and experienced deep visions that told me a lot about what these things were about. And then I tested everything. I tested, constantly testing. So I have a real sort of scientific bent, but I'm a natural scientist. I'm not a trained scientist. So I gather, you know, anecdotal information. And now I, since I've trained uh, hundreds of people at this point, 
how to do my healing work. And I've also given about 10,000 sessions. I've watched what happens in sessions to people. It's very, very consistent. And I've developed a way, like a skill, for how to work with energy. Most people know what to do. Like there's lots of what to do's out there. But how to do it is missing. And that was the piece that I was instinctively drawn to. One of the fundamentals you deal with is what you call the core. Yes. Yes, indeed. Let's talk about the core. So the core is a core of light. And, you know, having read the Bhagavad Gita, I am also aware that it might be called the Shishima in, uh, or the Shishuma in uh, traditional Vedic healing or Vedic healing. So what I see, however, is not described uh, varied in great detail in the Bhagavad Gita. It's described as a, a column of light more. What I see is a triple current downward spiraling stream of energy that comes from above us, moves all the way through the entire physical body and then exits, but stays in the sacred anatomy. And it is about 50 feet long. It's 20 feet above us including our physical body, and then 20 feet below, approximately. People range in size, of course. But it's so interesting because the core has three segments. So at its very, very center, it is red. Now, that, interestingly enough, was difficult for me to see for a long, long time. And I mostly saw it as this kind of golden light for years, And then when I began to really do a deep dive into how to describe this, and people were coming to me and saying, teach me how you do this stuff, I started to have to really put it into language that other people could grasp. And so I began to look more deeply, and there it was revealed that the innermost part was this red purpose current, and the purpose current was spinning always uh, clockwise from the point of view of the human looking down at your own, spinning this way. So, And then on the left side is this beautiful gold current, which for a number of years appeared to be somewhat green to me, and then it became gold. And then on the right side is blue current. Now, the gold current is the wisdom current, and the blue current on the right side is the function current. All three of these currents are wrapped in a golden sheath, which I think is why people have seen it as gold. So as they move, they create this dynamic, powerful, energetic that is at the absolute center of every single person, place, or thing. Cells have it. Trees have it. Planets have it. The core is always there. And so it's only natural to start to wonder what is it made of and why is it so omnipresent? And what I began to realize over time was that this was the totality within us, that this was indeed the sacred source within ourselves. So each and every one of us has at their core the divine source, the creative impetus is there within us. And we always have a place within us that is never broken, never bent, never injured, never traumatized, because it is all things. Would you say that each person's core is unique to them? Not really. The core is very uniform for all of us. It is, in fact, the thing that makes us one in many ways. What is unique to them is the core sheath that wraps around it because it takes the slings and arrows of life. It gets the hits from accidents and injuries and traumas. And that's the part of us that's quite unique. So here's the most interesting thing about the core. So the core being the source within us is, of course, the source of the sacred anatomy. But how does that happen? It happens because 
currents of light peel off the core at the very top and actually form our sacred anatomy. So these are individuated streams of light. And as they come off of the core, they shape and form the subtle anatomy. And yes, that is completely individual to each person. Everybody has a slightly different shape and contour. Everybody's energy structures, even though they have the same ingredients and they basically look the same anatomically, they're very unique unto each person. I've never seen two people that mm-hmm. are alike. So there's a sense now from your description of, uh, about the core that uh, it represents what my, I might call the observer, the pure ob- observer that m- might be, some people would say, the one spirit that we all share. Well, yeah, I, I think you're right about that. Um, I truly think that we are maybe even beyond the observer, but the container, you know, because I remember when I used to be a lab rat. I was a lab rat for Dakin Laboratories and Stanley Krippner's research early in the 70s. And when that happened, I learned that the observer can very definitely influence the experiment. So in many ways, I'm not sure that the core is an observer as much as it might be considered the container, that which holds all mm. things. Well... And and then you describe the spiritual anatomy. I think you describe it sort of as an egg, as a round shape, as opposed to the core being a column. Yeah, so the core is at the center, and then around mm-hmm. us we have our, you know, an egg shape is kind of a standardized form that I've used because we had to do that for the art. But truthfully, everybody has a uniquely different shape. Some people look like, mushrooms, you know, some people look like triangles, some people look like more like columns of light, but everybody has all the anatomical parts. And they're just in different contained shape. So that's the Mm -hmm. unique part. You know, I'm reminded of uh, a saying in uh, the Hermetic tradition, I think from the Emerald Tablet, as above, so below. And it, it suggests to me that for every physical organ in our body, and, and of course there are dozens and dozens of organs and billions of cells, there would be a counterpart in the spiritual anatomy. Is that how you see it? Bam, mic drop. You nailed it. That's perfect. That is so accurate. And, and more so, even, even so fascinatingly, the layers, which of course people talk about as the bodies, and I disagree with that idea. I think there's one body and it yeah. includes it all. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the layers are mm-hmm. like organs. The blended energy system, which includes the 13 chakras of my, of my system, that is like a cardiovascular system. So it has chakras, right? That's that's an amazing thing there, or like hearts that are beating. And then we have the template, which is like the nervous system. And we have the elimination system, again, the elimination system for subtle energy. And we have the electromagnetic field, which is an extraordinary part of our structure, what people think of as the aura. And that's like a bridge that delivers the information. So it's it's almost like the kind of thing we would use, like the the effect of the voice or pheromones, the effect of reaching across that which is containing us, the physicality and moving out into the world. And then we have the harmonizing network, which is this extraordinary system, much like a chemical system, and except it's sound frequency. And last of all, the bones of light, which are the most amazing internal support skeletal system. So, yeah, in large strokes, yes. And yet we can dial down into the 36 strata of the sacred anatomy and we can find in each strata a connection, a place. There's a way that the energy structure expands out and I have uh, acupuncturists who are students of mine, and we've experimented with placing light needles in the sacred anatomy. And oh my God, it actually works. So this is this is some this we're into some cool stuff, and and we're having a lot of fun with it. You know, it's just amazing mm-hmm. how much we can. So we're looking at what can we do with this? What can we do with this? 
A lot of people would suggest that the, uh, let's take an illness, for example, that an illness might show up in the spiritual anatomy before it manifests physically, uh, and maybe can even be prevented if, if you see it. Uh, emerging uh, spiritually, would you, would you say that's your experience? Well, I would say that it's partially true. That is partially my experience. And then other times, what I find is that things begin in the physicality and emanate out. So I think it's a communication. I think it's a partnership between the subtle and the material. And there are different energies that make up the sacred anatomy. There's the electromagnetic field, and then there's subtle anatomy or subtle energy, which I think is a fifth quantum energy. And I'm not alone with that thought. The fifth quantum energy. I bet. Yeah, I'm a little... I'm uh-huh. a little bit of a radical in some ways, but I, for the last uh-huh. 25 years, have been saying that there's a fifth energy, and we could call that okay. consciousness. Yes. I think what you're saying is over and above the four recognized forces in physics, gravity, electromagnetism, the weak force, the strong force, and then consciousness is what you're saying. Yeah, consciousness or what I call subtle energy. Desda, it's very interesting that you mentioned Dakin Laboratories and Stanley Krippner. In fact, I had an office at uh, what was then called in the 1970s the Washington Research Center, uh, a facility owned by my uh, old friend and mentor, Henry Dakin. So I guess we we might have even rubbed shoulders back then. Oh, my God. Were you uh, one of the grad students that was uh, part of the lab rat experiments? <laughs> we were moving well, dials, I, you know. You know. I, I'm sorry, say that again? We were moving dials. So we were sitting behind plate oh. glass windows, and we were supposed to move dials, and then they were doing the card experiments. It was very, I think it was really the beginning stages of exploration, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I don't remember that specific uh, study, but I'd spent many years there, so uh, uh, perhaps we just missed each other. Yeah, I bet we were running around that same, those same crew. Did you know Eleanor Criswell? Oh, very well. So Eleanor and I were, Mm -hmm. became really good friends, and Thomas Hanna, Mm -hmm. and uh, they just did amazing, amazing work. Eleanor is still doing incredible work with uh, horses. She does yeah. somatic healing with horses. I mean, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. How cool. Oh, sure. Eleanor's, Eleanor's an old friend. <laughs> and Thomas Hanna, when he was alive, I've interviewed him as, as, as well. So now Thomas Hanna was into some very deep and profound forms of body work. And, uh, He's, he, as I remember, he studied with Moshe Feldenkrais and then developed methods that went beyond the Feldenkrais method. Uh, in fact, he called it the Hannah method. So in your work, do you, you do body work like that as well, I assume? Oh, I don't do any body work. Um, I don't okay. put it, I don't lay hands on people. I work off the body energetically. So that's what I, I do. See. But what I, what Thomas and Eleanor and my husband Bob and I talked about frequently was actually uh, altered states and how to accomplish mm-hmm. altered states without the use of drugs. And uh, so we mm-hmm. did some experiments around that. He had one uh, gizmo that we looked at that was a like an old record player spinning at 33 and a third or 45 RPM. I can't remember which. And it had words printed on the outside of a cylinder. And oh, he would look at them. Yeah. Do you remember that? And it would like alter your consciousness. And <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, uh-huh. So, you know, basically he wanted to know how I lived in this altered state, you know. So we Mm -hmm. talked a lot about what it was like to live in an altered state and to see what I saw, to feel what I feel, and to live how I live, um, knowing what I know about people when I meet them and the connection that I have with people and how that works. And so it was very early. I was in my early 20s, so that was a very early time for me, and it actually set me on on the path of real uh, personal investigatory work. I'm grateful to both Mm -hmm. Thomas and, and Eleanor. 
Yeah, they're doing very profound work, uh, as a matter of fact. And, and right there where you live in uh, Nevada. Right. I know. Like around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <sighs> so, uh, you know, in my own studies of, of the human aura and people who see auras, one of, one of the things that parapsychologists have observed uh, traditionally is that people who see auras all seem to see them uniquely, that you very rarely have uh, two people who, who, when they report what they see, are describing the same thing, which makes me think that aura reading is a form of what we call synesthesia, that you're, the information comes in at a... Um, well, I'll call it a parapsychological level, and uh, or it might be some other sensitivity, but then it's displayed in the sensorium of the mind in a very unique way, depending uh, on each person's experience. Uh, w- would you say that's your thinking about it as well? Well, that's a really uh, that's a really cool idea, and and I actually. I like the idea, and I especially like sensorium of the people of a person's mind. I, I really like that a lot. Yeah, yeah good words. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. I, so I think aura readers are hampered mm-hmm. by the fact that they're affecting the electromagnetic energy that they're reading. Um, electromagnetic mm-hmm. fields are reflective. Um, there's a wonderful local scientist, local to the Bay Area scientist, a guy named Federico Fagan, who um, I heard give a wonderful talk. In fact, he gave my talk before I gave it, which was which was interesting. I spoke at a conference, IIHS conference some years ago, and Federico got up and talked before me and talked about the reflective nature of the electromagnetic field and the fact that it was just demonstrating what it was being shown. And uh, then he also talked about the fifth quantum energy, by the way. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But the the uh, electromagnetic field, as Federico and I both agreed, is a, a reflective field. And it shows the health and the well-being of the mind, the, the brain, really, the heart and the cells. And so when readers watch it and they are interacting with the edge of their electromagnetic field, what they don't know is that they're affecting it and they're actually impacting the health and well-being of the person that they're reading. So, of course, it's going to be very subjective because they're really looking at their own influence on the other person. So uh, I don't even teach my students to do that. We look at the sacred anatomy and the electromagnetic field is a part of that and we work with it, but we don't read the electromagnetic field because we find it's a false uh, a false tell or a false story, if you will, mm-hmm. and that the the greater anatomy, the subtle anatomy, which is the anatomy of consciousness, has a greater sort of integrity to it, and it also has an older and a longer life. Electromagnetic field dies when the physical body dies, but the sacred anatomy doesn't. And as I've been with a number of many people when they've died, I've watched the two split apart. And actually, in my own two death experiences, experienced the electromagnetic field pulling away and the sacred anatomy lifting out. And it's that whoosh that people feel at the end of life, you know, that the energy that lifts up and then they're just gone. But the electromagnetic field will like hover over the body for a while, three to four days usually. So... That's why I think aura readers don't necessarily have a consistency that they can take to the bank, you know? In your Sacred Anatomy Academy, uh, you've trained many people uh, in in your process. Uh, Do they, uh, when they're reading... If maybe I'm even using the wrong language, but do they read the uh, subtle anatomy? Um, Well, you know, you could... You could loosely say that that's what we're doing, but in truth, what we're doing is assessing the sacred anatomy. And I've developed um, measurements and ways to uh, very specifically assess the sacred anatomy so that all practitioners get the same result. And this is a really critical piece. Um, when Elizabeth Targ did her famous uh, study 
about um, prayer and then, you know, energy work and how it affected people. And then they did that uh, really incredible study that they did about um, brain cancer and had 75 different healers. I refused to be part of that study because they were not consistently working in the same way. So you weren't going to get a consistent result at all. And that was, in fact, what the study did prove. So it is my um, premise and my theory working that I've been working with for some time that if we work consistently in the same way from the edge of the sacred anatomy and with a consistent technique, which I call the edge practice, we are able to get the same results or within a margin of very small difference, one point or something. And so what we're able to do is assess the condition that people come into us at, and we assess the different systems, we assess how the systems are working together, and then we can look also at the physicality and how it's affected or how it's how it's essentially showing what the sacred anatomy shows. So there's, I mean, there's a very complex system and it's very detailed. And because it's as detailed and complex as the physical body, you know, <laughs> you have guys that all they do is endocrine, you know, <laughs> and this is, this is a yeah. whole body system. So it's, there's a lot to it. I'm like uh, Vesalius who mapped the human body by dissecting it for the first time and writing down and drawing, you know, the liver. And I'm like that guy. <laughs> mm. Well, I think there's a whole other dimension to your work because as as I looked at at your book, I see that the state of consciousness of the practitioner is crucial. Absolutely. Like before somebody begins to study with me, I insist that they have a spiritual practice. Now that isn't it, I don't care what it is, you know, and I don't care what people believe in. That's their business. But they have to be able to find that spacious, quiet place within themselves. Or energy work is not a real thing for them. It's a game. Hmm. And so I just don't even bother training people who don't have a spiritual practice. That's an important and critical thing. And it is, mm -hmm. in fact, the consciousness that they're holding, the <clears throat> way that they're approaching the individual before them. So I was talking about the divine source at the center. They have to see people as whole. They have to see people as divine. And so it's a mm -hmm. co-creative partnership that they're, they're making happen in the healing session, which is really... Mm -hmm. uh, a sacred anatomy energy medicine session. Well, it's interesting when you talk about seeing people as as divine. Uh, I've had in in my background some experience with Kundalini yoga, and I understand from uh, various Kundalini yoga practitioners that when they talk about Shakti energy moving through the body, they're really referring to the goddess Shakti. Yeah, that I mean, I've I've heard that too, and uh, so I think that there is well wrapped around the core. This this would tie into mm. that. Wrapped around the core is a part of the anatomy that I've named the caduceus, and it because it looks like the two snakes rising, and what it is is essentially two. Uh, sealed circuits, two closed circuits, one a yin circuit, yin arising from below and then descending from the rear, and then yang descending from above at the front and then arising at the rear. So there are circuits that are closed and they move through the exterior of the core and they're contained within the core sheath. And that is what some people might also think of as the Ida and the Pinga, so the Pingala. Mm -hmm. And so those, the Ida, the Pinga, and the Shishima would be um, what Kundalini yogis are looking at in the, the yogi Kundalini arising. And yeah. it's the release of the goddess or the release of the divine feminine within. But I see it as a balance. And when people have Kundalini blowouts, it's because they actually have a malfunction of the, of the caduceus. So it's really important when doing Kundalini yoga, for example, to allow the rise, but also understand the descent. 
and to make a clear circuit and to understand that one is also uh, allowing the feminine and the masculine or the yin and the yang, if you will, the the solar and the lunar aspect of the human uh, energetic, which is not particularly gender specific, but is more energetic in nature to allow that to really move effectively and so I think Kundalini Yoga is an incredible practice. My husband is a Kundalini Yogi. I recall in uh, one ashram uh, that I visited, uh, they talk about how the uh, Shakti energy can get blocked at various points. And they have, I don't know, dozens, maybe even hundreds of individual places where the energy can get blocked and specific techniques for uh, helping to free that energy. And, and the techniques are different depending on the location where it's blocked uh, I, I assume your work is maybe along those lines. I think you're exactly right. And um, my work, uh, my my dear, um, dear old friend, Robert Hall, who was a student of Neem Karoli Baba, was uh, the person who brought Randolph Stone, he and Richard Strozzi, Hackler, brought R- Randolph Stone to the United States, the founder of Polarity Therapy. But they discovered him in India uh, as Neem Karoli Baba's doctor. And so they mm-hmm. were all disciples of him. And Robert, I when I wrote my book, my first book, I, I sent it to Robert and I said, would you please look at this? Because he was not just a student of esoteric wisdom and knowledge and profound meditator, but he was also a psychiatrist and an MD. So I sent the work to him and I said, what what do you think, Robert? And he's, he wrote back saying, this is the most beautiful, clear book I've ever read in my life. And he he told me in, in those words, in that letter, that uh, he felt that what I was doing was critical to the advancement of medicine. And and I and I would agree that it is because the work that people have done through all the eons, finding the specific place to release a frequency, letting energy go as these wonderful, you know, yogis have done in the Kundalini tradition and the the great healers of the Ayurvedic tradition, the great healers of, you know, ancient Judaism, the great healers of the Muslim tradition, the Sufi tradition. There are so many amazing people who have shared their wisdom through the through the eons and in some ways my work is an attempt to pull a lot of those concepts into focus and I didn't even know I was doing it until I had done it I can say having read a lot of those books uh, uh, many theorists have pointed out the similarities in the descriptions of Kabbalistic thinkers in Europe and yogis in India and uh, biodynamic practitioners in the United States and uh, orgone therapists uh, uh, people who talk about martial arts key energy, chi energy uh, they all see the same general outlines I I think, as regards the energy system. But what's unique to my way of thinking about your work is the uh, massive amount of detail that you have been able to specify. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, you know, I have... I have a detail-oriented mind, you know. Astrologically, I'm a double Virgo. Mm -hmm. So I, I am really focused on how does this work? more interested in that than necessarily like the spiritual ramification of something. So a lot of people yeah. through the through the years have studied like for example the spiritual import of chakras and the sort of uh psycho political emotional uh stuff that one would want to know about a heart chakra for example. I just wanted to know like how the heck it got formed. What happened? How did it make itself known? How did this happen? And so my work is about the how. And it's actually really wonderful because if I do say so, <laughs> because it it's kind of an underpinning for um for a lot of different works. Like if you take, if you're a doctor, for example, and you take the sacred anatomy and you simply know about it, 
you begin to interface with the human body differently. If you're an acupuncturist and all you do is read my book, you begin to think about especially the eight extraordinary vessels differently. You begin to think about things that are considered the esoterica of what it is that you do differently because I've given it a certain amount of form. And, you know, people have been trying to map the soul for like thousands of years, right? And I think I did it. So yep. it's kind of, it's very egocentric maybe, but it's also kind of what's going on. So it's it's this time of our evolution that needs it. Mm-hmm. We need this specificity because we need to understand that there's a true bridge between science and spirituality, that we're actually not handicapped by our spirits or by our science, and that there is this joining point where we can work together to understand the science of spirituality and the spirituality of science. And it's there. It's right there for us. And everyone has access to it. You can actually feel it. Now, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our discussion that you began testing your your vision of of these things, not as a trained scientist, but a, as a, a curious person with a, a bright, logical mind, a double Virgo, as as you pointed out. Uh, what kind of tests did you did you perform? Oh, this is this is so exciting. So. You know, nobody ever asked me this question, Jeffrey. So thank you so much for doing that. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this, the scientific experiments that we did, or science-like experience, experiments that we did, <clears throat> is that we had people actually do the same procedure with the same client at the same time and then compare what it is that they noticed, what it is that they shifted, and where they saw the issue lying. And we looked at that. I also did things like, I use a dowsing rod, you know, but I use it completely differently than most dowsers. So I sense, because I'm not just clairvoyant, I'm also clairsentient and clairaudient and clairsmellient and clair other things. And so I, <laughs> I use, I have a dowsing rod. So I use this dowsing rod. Mm. And um, I have these made especially for me, and they're the Cadillac of dowsing rods. And, and I use them to get pulses and percentages. And then we compare the pulse and percentage that we got. So we compare and contrast a lot of things. And we no one that studies with me learns to just use one sensate capacity. So, for example, if you're clairsentient and clairvoyant, well... You use those, but then you also use your common sense. You use that and compare and contrast. And you use measurements and numbers and and pulses. And you use the knowledge of the client sitting in front of you. You ask them what they know. And this is, when we compare all the factors we get similar results, if not exactly the same results. Uh, I think the tricky thing is that uh, you're dealing with something that is pretty invisible to our normal five senses, and uh, which is the basis, of course, of conventional science. Uh, and and so you have to find ways to uh, compensate for that. And and what I hear you saying is you're you're using the um, overlapping reports of multiple individuals. Yeah, we do that. I mean, that is a way that we've learned. But one of the things that I teach people to do is to um, assess from what they have. In other words, if someone is a mm-hmm. clairvoyant. They might use what they see. If someone is clairaudient, they might use what they hear. Clairsentient, they might use what they feel. One of the uniform ways that we test people is that everyone works from the same place in their sacred anatomy. So all the practitioners, whether they're clairvoyants, clairsentients, or clairaudients, are all operating using the same technique which is Mm -hmm. this edge practice. And they place their awareness at the edge, their consciousness at the edge of their consciousness. 
And so by doing that, they become much more clinically accurate, for one thing. And for the other thing, we have very consistent results. It's when people's egos get involved and they're assessing and get becoming attached to assessment. That's where you have problem. So when people are working at the edge, their ego isn't present. It's not even something that's in the room. And so we have this tremendous consistency. And it's the thing that I tried to convince the people at UC when they were doing the uh, study on psychics and psychic healing. I, I tried to convince them that they needed to have a consistent way that everybody was working. And, um, and I don't mean everybody doing the same thing, like everybody doing Reiki, because all Reiki practitioners work differently. So it's really important, or acupuncture or anything like that, Everyone needs this edge practice, and it takes the ego out, it takes the persona out, and you're just having an experience of this sacred connection, really a soul connection. But, but what do you mean by the edge of consciousness? I, I wasn't aware that my consciousness had an edge. Aha! Uh-huh. Well, so that's, I love that. Um, so the edge of our sacred anatomy is the edge of of what we could consider our soul consciousness. In other words, the individuated soul, the small s. Yes, you're right. Consciousness has no end. But it isn't the personal consciousness that has no end. Mm -hmm. It is the cosmic consciousness that has no end. So how we connect with, attune to, and engage with the cosmic consciousness is a critical thing. And that's why I suggest the edge practice for everybody that trains with me or really for anybody on the planet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think everybody should know this. Uh, about the edge, do you mean like the edge of the aura? Uh, no, because the aura is the electromagnetic field. So I'm talking about the energetic structure, which is much larger, 20 feet out. And your electromagnetic field is only about mm, two to five feet out from your physical body. So there's a, a little bit of distance between the edge of the electromagnetic and the edge of the sacred, subtle energy uh structure. And so the human energy structure is this powerful, uh, powerful thing. And it is, in fact, that which contains our soul's purpose and our soul's journey and our soul's activity in co-creative relationship with the divine source. Um, and of course, people that reach nirvana or find a, uh, an enlightenment go often expanding way beyond that and they in fact start to disintegrate or dissemble the sacred anatomy in in a lotus shape and it's quite quite beautiful to see some people who are aura readers can tell me they see the past lifetimes in in the aura i wonder how past lives might fit in well, there's a whole layer that's devoted to the soul's uh, history, the historical. It's the mini Akashic record that each of us has. Um, and that is the etheric layer of the sacred anatomy, which is almost to the edge of the subtle anatomy. It's very large and it's broken into eight different strata representing each uh, period of a life uh, before conception all the way to after death. And so this um, part of the sacred anatomy holds the records of all the past lives that the person has ever had. And I teach uh, etheric reading in one of the classes that I teach, a sort of a side class that I teach called Awakening the Nine Levels of Sensing. And it's a very important thing for a practitioner to know how to do. But I don't think that past lives have all that much to do with the present. Occasionally they do. Occasionally they crop up and, oh boy, it's important and interesting. But we have a way to work with that. The book that I wrote, Your Sacred Anatomy, An Owner's Guide to the Human Energy Structure, was was really just that. It wasn't a book about healing. And it wasn't a book necessarily about my personal philosophy. It was really a book about the sacred anatomy and truly an encyclopedic book that was, you could think of it as a life work, really. And my next yeah. book is going to be about the edge practice. 
because your work is so detailed, and I know you have the uh, Sacred Anatomy Academy, I just wonder, how long does it take for a, a student to really go through your program to become uh, uh, a adept uh, at at the work that you do. I'm guessing several years at least. But uh, w- what is that process like? Well, we offer introductory classes, of course, and they are available. Some of them online, and some of them not. Um, and those teach you how to begin using the technique, the edge practice, which is the foundation of everything that we do. And then I teach energetic hygiene because self care is the most important people skill there is. And then after that, we begin a class called uh, the medicine bag. And that is uh, essentially sort of a beginning healer's journey. And um, I created that because I wanted people who are already wonderful healers to have an opportunity to learn some of the techniques and to use them in their work people who might not want to go on to um, to study to be practitioners of sacred anatomy energy medicine. But what we have is essentially about a, uh, it's about a year uh, for the introductory classes. And then if you decide to become a practitioner, it's actually about another two years of work. So it's a, a several years, and some people have likened it to a PhD program because it's very, very detailed and deep. And in intensive. And then there's ongoing education that people need to stay up with because, oh my God, there's new stuff every day, you know, and there's mm-hmm. new information that's constantly showing itself. And some of my students are so creative and amazing and they're discovering things. So it, all it takes is somebody who's already a little bit adept and then they began to see from this point of view and they start uncovering new ideas. So things are growing exponentially. Pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, Des de Zuckerman, this has been a delightful conversation. I'm very happy to be with you, and I look forward to future discussions. Oh, thank you, Jeffrey. And I loved talking to you. It was so much fun. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. 